I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at sacred scripture through the lens of apostolic tradition. And we love to have you become part of our show. You can do so in a number of ways. One, like these nice folks have done from all over the United States, uh, be part of our live studio audience. We love having you here. And another way is during the live uh, broadcast, which is at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, you can call in. If you're in North America, you can call 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are not in North America, you can still call in, but it is country code 1, area code 205-271-2946. You can also send us questions by email by writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now today we're going to discuss our Lord Jesus' decision to cross the Sea of Galilee in order to visit the Gentiles on the east side. We'll also take a look at the conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisee who had an enthusiastic desire to follow him. Uh, he asks the Pharisee and he asks us, are we willing to follow Jesus even if it entails poverty, insecurity, and even danger? Now, we're still continuing through my book called Praying the Gospels. Jesus' Miracles in Galilee. If it's helpful for you to follow along, you can get that book at EWTNRC.com. EWTNRC for Religious Catalog.com. It is item number 52885. Okay? All right. So let's begin. We are looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 27 throughout these meditations. Our first meditation occurs right before our Lord Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee. In verse 8, chapter 8, verse 18, it says, Now when Jesus saw great crowds around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Now, keep in mind some of the background here. Our Lord has done quite a number of healings. He has exercised a number of demons at different places. And yet the opposition from the Pharisees and from the Herodians. The Herodians were those people attached to the court of King Herod and uh, Antipas, not Herod the Great, he's long dead, but there are a lot of Herods. It was a fairly common name among lots of rulers. There are plenty of kings Herod. Uh, you need a scorecard to tell who is whom. And then we see here that um, 
you know, they're opposing him, the more good he does, the more they oppose him. And this is probably because the crowds are growing in size and they're loving Jesus all the more. So our Lord Jesus continued teaching the people, but then he decides to cross from the western side of the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jewish people lived. So that was Jewish mostly on the west side. And he's going to cross over to the east side. That was mostly Gentile and pagan. And that's a very important thing to understand that, uh, that, you know, Jewish people didn't live surrounding the whole Sea of Galilee in those days. And in fact, to make sure that there was a balance of power, when the Roman general Pompey conquered that region in the uh, 60s BC, he set up a, an area called the Decapolis. Decapolis literally means 10 cities. It wasn't always 10, it varied in numbers, but that was a, a coalition of Gentile cities uh, that were throughout the area. Scythopolis is near ancient Bichon and uh, Gerasa was a very large city. You can still go and see it, by the way. The ruins of that are, are intact because the earthquake knocked it down, so they just put all the stones back. It's a great place to go in the kingdom of Jordan. Uh, Amman, Jordan used to be Philadelphia. You see, they had a lot of Greek names. And so those cities were on the east side, along with some, some others. Okay? And the, cap, the administrative capital of that area was Gerasa, which again today in Arabic is known as Jarash. Really, a, a, a beautiful ancient city. And the ruins have been put together again. And they'd have lots of cultural events there, lots of concerts and things in the theaters. Uh, it's a beautiful place. I've been there many times and I love it. Uh, and that'll come into play it would be very important to understand some of the role of Garasa, now called Jarash, um, when we get to the next episodes. Now, our Lord tells his disciples to go across the lake. It's about seven miles across. Sea of Galilee is 12 miles north to south and about seven miles at its widest point. And he, as he gets ready, we see in the Gospel of Luke an event that St. Matthew doesn't mention uh, at the, in this context. Uh, just something about the structure of the two Gospels. St. Luke tended and said so. He, he tends to put things in chronological order. Uh, and it's good to mention St. Luke today is his feast day. So happy feast of St. Luke. St. Matthew organizes the gospel differently. He likes to put all the miracles together. So he's got miracles in chapters 8 and 9. And then the mission 
uh, of Jesus and the apostles in 10, 11, and 12. And then all the parables are together in chapters, uh, uh, thir chapter 13. So it, it, he organizes it in looks to me like columns. Makes me think that he really is the tax collector who thinks in terms of ledgers with columns. Here's your miracles column, your mission column, here's your parables column, and so on. So we'll turn over to St. Luke, who describes the same event, but adds this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Our Lord responds to him and said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Let's just take a look at that first person, that Pharisee. Okay? He is a, a, a scribe. And what's a scribe? A scribe is one of the scholars in the Pharisee party. The Pharisee party was a party of lay people. These are not the priests. In fact, in many ways, for the most part, they were standing against the priestly party, which were the Sadducees. They're named after a, a priest named Tzadok. So they're really called the Tzadokim in, in Hebrew. Uh, so the, the, the priests of the Tzadokim were the Sadducees, and the uh, Pharisees were lay people. Among them were some better scholars. They could read, write, and, uh, and engage in some scholarship. Those are the scribes. And usually the scribes are among Jesus' opponents, but not this time. Um, and in fact, when when they refer to the scribes plural, it's usually referring to Jesus' opponents, his enemies. But when scribe appears one at a time, a single scribe, it usually is a scribe who is open to listening to Jesus. So the group might be opposed, but the individual is open, and this is a case of one who is open. And this is something that uh, Jesus, you know, calls himself the Son of Man. Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Where does he get that phrase, Son of Man? From Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel had a vision of the Son of Man in glory. See, this is part of the contrast Everybody, and especially a scholar, would say, the Son of Man, well, that's going to be in glory. He's in heaven. But here Jesus says, no, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He has less to depend on than the birds or the foxes. And uh, this is set before him, before the scribe, as a reality of his poverty. Remember how... It, it's St. Paul wrote that Jesus made himself poor so they might make us rich. This is the, absolute, the emptying of Jesus in poverty. And if the scribe is willing to accept that 
poverty and the risk involved in having nothing and depending on God's providence, then he can follow. That's the uh, issue going on there. And <clears throat> we'll see as, as comes up in the next couple of episodes in the Gospels that there are risks and we have to, you know, pay attention to these risks. Um, it's left, and here, St. Luke doesn't tell us what the scribe said, does he? St. Luke doesn't say what the man did. He left it open. Why? Because he wants us to read this and make our own decision. This is not just for the scribe. It's for each one of us to understand what it means to follow Jesus. And we have to ask our Lord, uh, ask ourselves first, am I willing to follow Jesus even if it entails poverty? And for those of you who have taken the risk of marriage and children, you know that you become impoverished in other ways, not just by not having things to start off with, but that you spend an awful lot of your money on your children. You know, their, their health care, their education, all this. You are giving and giving and giving. But that's part of being a disciple of Christ within matrimony. Let's take a look at the second man, who's a little bit different. This is a disciple, because it says in verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 21, another of the, the disciples said to him, um, let me first uh, uh, go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, again, this guy's already a disciple. He's already a disciple. And he wants to join Jesus in the boat. But he has a request that's kind of legitimate. He says, you know, now the boat's ready, ready to go leave. He said, well, let me first go bury my father. Well, here's one of the things. Um, it's a legitimate request. The Ten Commandments said to honor your father and your mother. And burying of the dead is a very important uh, uh, act of charity. It's one of the acts of mercy. The, the, in, in the church teaches the corporal works of mercy. The last of those is burying the dead. And by the way, just as a little thing, I think I mentioned this in another show, but a funeral director... Uh, at a, I was you know, there for, to celebrate a funeral. And on our way over to the uh, burial uh, of this, this woman, uh, the funeral director told me how people are not coming back to pick up the cremains. After they cremate their relatives, they don't come back to bury them. They just leave them there. I hesitate to say this, but frankly, it sounds as if, well, you know, I had my dog, you know, taken care of, and they, and they just took, took care of the, uh, the dog. No, no, you have an obligation to bury your dad. And, just leave. and some of these funeral directors sometimes have hundreds of cremains nobody comes for. This is not right. 
You show respect to the dead and bury them. Um, so, uh, and we see that in Tobit chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, you know, Tobit tells his son, bury me when I die. And in, uh, in Sirach, verse 38, um, you know, it tells people to lay, you know, give a proper burial. My child, let your tears fall for the dead, and as one in great pain, begin to lament. Lay out the body with due ceremony, and do not neglect the burial. Let your weeping be bitter and your wailing fervent. Make your mourning worthy of the, of the departed for one day or two to avoid criticism. Then be comforted in your grief. Also, the rabbis, the, the scribes, wrote a book called the Mishnah around 200 A.D. In a Mishnah tractate Berakot, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, He whose dead lies unburied before him is exempt from reciting Shema and from, and from saying the tefillah and from wearing phylacteries. So it's, you know, burying of the dead is very important. But there is something else that is part of the scriptures. And it, and it's, it gives an exception. Who does not bury his parents? The high priest. It says in Leviticus, chapter 21, verses 10 to 11, the priest who is exalted above his fellows, that is the high priest, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who has been consecrated to wear the vestments, shall not dishevel his hair nor tear his vestments. That's what, that's what people did when they were mourning. They would tear their garments. Sometimes, to this day, Jewish people will oftentimes pin a piece of torn cloth onto their clothing as a sign of, of their mourning. He shall not go where there is a dead body. He shall not defile himself even for his father and mother. So normally you're supposed to bury your parents but not the high priest. And this may be, well, first of all, it's connected with a big part of Israelite faith. God is a God of the living, not a God of the dead. Therefore, the high priest has to be among the living. And contact with death makes somebody unclean. So when Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead, he's saying, first of all, you can't delay my crossing of the Sea of Galilee. I have to go and I can't wait for the funeral. I need to go now. Secondly, it also means that the priest or that the disciple has to follow Jesus as a priority that is as high as the ministry of the high priest. That this is a very important element. That this is very shocking to, for people of this time. But Jesus' mission is as important as the high priest's mission. And in fact, we will see as you go in later parts of the New Testament, like the letter to the Hebrews, that Jesus is our high priest. So, and he makes us a kingdom of priests. And therefore, his mission takes priority even over bearing the dead.
So that's one of the ways to help see what's going on in this passage. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back in just a minute and take a look at the next part of this passage. So please stay with us. Thank you. Thank you. Let's now take a look at a second meditation, which is about the journey across the Sea of Galilee. It starts off in chapter 8, verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. This is what disciples do. They follow Jesus. And this is something that uh, should be pretty normal. At least four of the disciples Peter and his brother Andrew, James and John, were fishermen. They were crossing back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. Not like we do today in boats that are motorized, but they were rowing across and using uh, sails as well. They, they had sails, and they used, just like people do today. So this would be very normal. But this doesn't mean that, okay, we're following Jesus, everything's going to go great. Because sometimes people think that if you follow our Lord, everything will just happen perfectly. It'll be, oh, I'm a good Christian. Life is going to be, you know, just set ahead. I'm doing what God asked me to do. So he'll just sort of clear the way of all the problems. That's not in my Bible. Mm-mm, mm-mm. We see as it goes along in uh, chapter 8, verse 24, that a windstorm arose on the sea so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. I remember one time being with a group of pilgrims and we were sailing across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and again, one of the motorized boats, but it is shaped like a boat from the time of Christ. They found such a boat at the bottom of the sea and they preserved it. And she said to me, uh, Father, the nun in our parish claims that the Sea of Galilee is so small, 12 miles by 7 miles, that dangerous storms never rise up. I'm not going to argue with her. You know, I don't live there. So I said to her, um, let's talk to this sailor. And I asked him about, are there any storms on this lake? It wasn't just his verbal answer. It was the look on his face and the sound of his voice. Oh, yeah, there are. It's dangerous. You know, and what the nun didn't know was enough geography. She should have been back in school or at least come to the Holy Land and look around more. You see, we have a picture here of what's known as the uh, Wadi Hammam, 
the Valley of the Doves. That's the Arabic name, uh, Wadi Hammam. And this is a narrow gorge in a very, very ancient earthquake. A large chunk, I mean an enormous chunk of Mount Arbel fell and it forms this valley. It's fairly narrow with lots of cliffs because it was just a sharp, you know, collapse of this, you know, this is a major, major earthquake fault. This goes all the way from the border with Lebanon through the Jordan Valley, the Dead Sea, into the Gulf of Aqaba, into the Red Sea and around to Africa and goes and becomes the Old Divide Gorge. That's an enormous, many thousands of miles long uh, crack in the earth. And so there's lots of earthquakes over the millennia, you know, then tens of thousands of uh, years. So because it forms a V-shape where it cracked off, so imagine a big chunk of mountain here and the main mountain here where it fell off. When the wind blows through this Wadi Hammam, the, the Valley of the Doves, it intensifies, it becomes like a bellows that the, because the dominant winds are from the northwest, they blow right through there like a bellows right onto the Sea of Galilee. You can see the little bit of blue. That's the Sea of Galilee there. It blows right onto it and it does make serious storms. And everybody was put in danger as water is washing over the gunnels. I've been in a, a storm in a smaller boat, a friend of mine had a 17-foot boat in the Gulf, and two storms hit right over us. And when water's starting to come over the gunnels, you just commence to your act of contrition now. Come on, get ready. So um, the, the disciples uh, wake Jesus up in chapter 8, verse 25, and it says, save, Lord, we are perishing. So, um, you know, this word, you know, save us, is also, in Hebrew, the word Hosanna. Not, not quite like you see the word Hosanna, Hoshatna, uh, but it's a, uh, it's a homonym for that word. Hosha means save. And in the word Hosanna, it means please save. Whereas in this form, also pronounced Hoshatna, means save us. Okay? So it's a, it's a pun on the word Hosanna. Um, so save us, Lord. And, you know, they're overwhelmed by the danger. Now, these are professional, at least four of them, are professional fishermen. And, uh, you know, this is something that is very important because earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 1, verse 21, St. Joseph had a dream. And the angel told him to go ahead and marry the Virgin Mary, right? And take her as wife. Um, and that he should name the child Jesus 
because he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua, Yeshua is from the same root as Hosha. Hosha means save. Yeshua comes from that same root, different form of it. And so uh, the uh, uh, disciples are making this play on his name. So, you know, and you do that in Semitic all the time. Um, and he's asking them, uh, him to say that because we are perishing. And it's astounding that he could sleep through this storm. And there's water coming over the gunnels. And he's still sleeping. And then he wakes up and uh, he says in a very astounding way, why are you afraid, O men of little faith? <laughs> well, because we're going to drown. <laughs> it's 100 feet down. 150 feet down, I should say. Um, but our Lord connects their fear with a lack of faith. This is very important in our times, too. In the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord had taught in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you Oh, you of little faith. People who don't trust in God's providence are people of little faith. And he um, wants us to have that faith. And he goes on to say in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Well, that's a big amen. Today's trouble is enough for today. Good thinking. Focus on today's problems, not tomorrow's. Well, tomorrow will come. Uh, even Annie knew that. So we have to have a focus on seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Our Lord calls us to put confidence in God's plan, to provide our daily bread, as He teaches in the Our Father. And this will be the basis of our faith that eliminates our anxiety. And the kind of faith that our Lord wants His disciples to have is that, remember, Son of man has less shelter than foxes and birds. So do you trust God the Father as much as Jesus does? He sets out without a place to lay his head, but he trusts in God the Father. And this teaching on faith is background for understanding the disciples' fear. He knows that the real issue behind that fear is a lack of faith. Now, it's important for us to keep in mind, the world is dangerous. It's not an easy place to live in. It has lots of natural dangers. As we see with our crime rising all over the country, as the various, I'm afraid, a lot of our politicians are not taking care 
to make sure that they protect citizens. You know, this is a, a, a real situation, and this is not a good thing. And I just saw today in the news another person was pushed in front uh, of a uh, subway train in New York. You know, this is, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous place because of sin. And we have to see that a lot of the dangers are what makes possible the good things. So, you know, you have to have rain for your crops, but rains can cause floods. You have to have wind, but they can become tornadoes and hurricanes. You need fire to cook your food and to have light, but it can also burn down a forest or a city. My hometown of Chicago burnt down once. Um, all of these things are very much, uh, you know, a, a, a danger, but they have possibilities. And so we have to keep that in mind as we go through the world. And I love the, this element, the, the story from the autobiography of St. Therese, the little flower of this year. She was suffering a lot from tuberculosis, and her sis the sisters in her convent, who were, some of them were her own natural sisters, they wondered about her faith and her prayer. And it seemed that, you know, the Lord's not answering you. Why don't you cry out more to him? And she said, this is a great, this is a quote, I do not want to cry out and wake the Lord when he seems asleep, lest he wake up and rebuke me for having little faith. What a very interesting way to think of it. So, again, all of us are going to experience dangers and difficulties in life, sadnesses, problems. We have to ask, how do we handle that? Is it in faith or in anxiety? Anxiety usually about things we can't control. So our anxiety doesn't help either. And what happens in those circumstances? Sometimes it seems really bad and yet other things come out of the bad. Good things sometimes come out of the good, the, the bad things that happen to us. So I urge you, imagine yourself speaking to Jesus. Picture him as he wakes up from his sleep in the boat, what would you say to Jesus about your troubles? What would you speak to him? What would he say back to you? Not what would you say back to him, to yourself, I mean, but what would he say to you? Try to talk to him as a friend to a friend and get, let him come to know your heart. Remember our Lord said to the uh, foolish virgins in Matthew 25. Go away, I never knew you. He wants to know what's in your heart. So tell him. Share that with him. And conclude with the prayer, Soul of Christ, save me. Body, uh, soul, soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Within your wounds, hide me. And from the wicked foe, defend me. Make that your prayer as you talk to him about your fears, your anxieties, 
and ask him for more faith. All right. Uh, let's now go to a caller. We have Janet in the great state of Ohio. Janet, what can we do for you today? Hi, Father. Thank you Hi. for taking my call. Sure. I just I wanted to um, ask you, being as how today's the Feast of St. Luke, I was just wondering if you could give me some information on his martyrdom and how he died. Mm -hmm. he, he was martyred in Greece, and there was a, a, his tomb was there. After St. Paul was martyred, he went to Greece. He had been there with St. Paul, and he was preaching there. And I don't remember the precise way. I think I can, uh, in fact, I think I might be able to look that up, um, you know, how he died uh, more precisely. But he uh, was martyred there, and very tragically, um, I don't know why they did this, but as most of you would know, the um, uh, feast, uh, let's see, is uh, what, what happened. Yeah, it was near uh, Boeotia in Greece. And he, um, his tomb was blown up by the Nazis. I don't know why they particularly did that. And, um, you know, he, um, by the way, he was, most of the uh, early church uh, say that he was one of the 70 uh, disciples that are mentioned in the gospel. Uh, this is by St. Epiphanius, wrote that in his Panarium. And um, that he had lived for a while near Troy, the ancient city of Troy, uh, later called Troas. And um, he died, oh, here, I found some. He died in eight, at age 84 and was, uh, uh, was martyred there, but it doesn't say how he martyred. Um, his tomb was in Thebes, and that's where the Nazis blew it up. So that's as much as I know. I, um, I don't know much more about the specific way of his death. Okay? All right. We have a question from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? Great, great. It's a blessed day to be here, Father Pacwa. Thank you. That's a very nice town, too. Thank so you. what can we do for you? Yes, my question is, we were talking about burying our dead. Regarding uh, cremated bodies, can mm -hmm. we divide them into two mm -hmm. and bury them in two different places? No, the, the, we sh we, it, the intention is to bury the, the, the body together. You know, that um, with a view toward the resurrection of the dead, uh, you know, you, you put the cremains together and, and bury them. And, and, you know, this is why the church urges us, you know, as a matter of fact, forbids us from spreading ashes over the ocean or around your land or... <laughs> Some people will take the ashes and sprinkle them all over the place. That's, that's A, against the law. You may not do I don't feel a lot of folks, the, the, the civil law doesn't allow that either. Um, but also the church doesn't. You know, you keep the cremains together. 
Okay. All right. We're going to take a little break. We have more questions from our studio audience as well as uh, emails and your questions. So please stay with us. Right. I uh, just want to ask you to join me for EWTN Live tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and we will talk with Father John Ricardo of Acts 29 Ministries about ways to counter the despair, anxiety, and fear in the world, just what we're talking about today, and to do so with hope and unshakable faith and confidence in our Lord. So we'll be just continuing on today's topic tomorrow. Um, and that wasn't planned. It just works out in God's providence. There's providence once again. All right, we have an email from Jessica. Th this lady wrote this some time ago, and I want to get to it. Uh, it says, Dear Father Mitch, my daughter asked me about the Archangel Uriel, whether it was all right to pray to this Archangel and ask for his intercession. I did some research and found that one source said that the church does not permit the naming of angels that are not found in the canonical books of the Bible, and that all names that, like that which were taken from apocryphal writings were rejected under Pope Zachary in the year 745 A.D. Another source said that Uriel is a patron saint of confirmation. I couldn't find an answer to my question in the catechism. My daughter wants a solid answer or explanation if this is not allowed. Jessica. Yeah, J Jessica, we know of Uriel from an apocryphal book. No, we don't accept this book, uh, the fourth book of Esdras. And this is um, not, not a book that's in the Bible. And as such, uh, no, nothing from Revelation is known for sure. And so we don't accept that. You know, I, I very much go along with Pope Zachary on this. Uh, we we uh, you know, don't name angels, and we um, uh, don't take angels who are not mentioned in Scripture. Now, there are lots of angels, and I'm not sure why she's interested in uh, Uriel, um, but you know, it is good for us to, you know, to, to stay with what God has given to us. The Holy Spirit has inspired the writings of sacred scripture, and we just don't know, uh, you know, all about the inspiration of these other books like Esdras. So we'll stick with the angels we do know, Saints Raphael, Saints Gabriel, and uh, Saint Michael, and especially Saint Michael. Uh, unlike uh, Uriel, who was told we can't seek his intercession, um, Pope Leo XIII urged us, especially at this time, 
where there's much evil to seek the intercession of St. Michael the Archangel. Use that prayer and do so with great confidence. Okay? All right. I have another question from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? I'm from Bethesda, Maryland. Nice to have you here. Welcome. And what's your question? My question is, I was wondering whether the vows of poverty, um, whether that comes from our reading today? Very much so. Uh, the, from this, this passage, so, so the vows of poverty uh, that religious orders take uh, are freely taken. It's, it's not something that is necessary for salvation, okay, uh, to have a vow of poverty. Though, if you get married and have kids, you'll also have your own version of vow of poverty. Um, but, um, you know, the evangelical vow of poverty is called an evangelical vow because you give up ownership of things. You can use things to the extent that it's serving the kingdom, otherwise you don't. And this um, vow of poverty is um, something that people can freely take. Just as in the early church, the community in Jerusalem held their property in common and shared equally amongst themselves, but the other communities did not. The people of Jerusalem did not condemn the other Christians who still held private property, but, you know, uh, and, no, and not vice versa either. You know, there's a freedom to choose that. And our Lord calls people to that way of life, and not everybody gets that same call. But what is a universal is that we should use the gifts of God because none of us created the world. None of you out there invented wheat. There might be some uh, uh, botanists out there who have improved certain aspects of wheat, but they didn't invent it. And they didn't invent uh, the lions, the tigers and bears or anything else. You know, you might improve the herd, but you don't make those critters. They're gifts for us to use or not use. And we should have an attitude of you know, uh, respect to use things insofar as they give glory to God and refrain from use that doesn't give glory to God. And so having money is not a sin. Having a lot of money is not a sin. What you do with it can be sinful or it can be virtuous. If you have a lot of money and help provide a lot of people with a living, not just giving them things, but helping them find a decent living and a decent way to earn their wages so that their dignity as well as their needs are met. That's a good thing. But if you use it to have caviar every day for your whole life, A, you might get gout, because that's kind of rich, and B, uh, you're not taking care of those who are in need. So that would be a good thing. 
All right, let's now go over to Rosemary in St. Louis, Missouri. Rosemary, what can we do for you? I have a question that I need to have an answer. Sure. My husband had his body cremated in order to save me some money. And naturally, I w want to do the same thing because it was his wish so I could be with him. Mm -hmm. At the present time, I have his remains in my bedroom on mm -hmm. a chest, mm -hmm. and I have not disposed of them or put them in, in, in the cemetery. I want to know what I should do. I don't want to offend God anymore. Right. And right. I want to do the proper thing to not cause any ire to anyone. You know, here's something I would recommend. I don't, I don't know St. Louis real well, but I will bet that there are parishes that have a columbarium. A columbarium is where you can place the ashes. It's a, a little niche. We have one at our parish, uh, St. Elias. And there's also an altar there and a shrine to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the, one of the nice things about that is whenever we go and place the ashes in the columbarium, we don't just pray for that one person, we pray for all the dead. And the advantage of putting it in a columbarium is that people will come there to visit. They'll put others, uh, other containers with ashes there too. And they'll be praying for you and all the other dead who are in that columbarium. And I would urge you to have your husband placed there with room for your, for your own ashes to be placed there. And in that way, you help to ensure that there'll be plenty of people coming by and praying. You know, um, in some places, you know, that when they scatter the ashes, you know, if you put them in the ocean or something like that, uh, my dad told me to scatter his ashes in the Pacific Ocean. I told him, no way. I swim in that ocean. I'm putting you in the cemetery. So I, so I buried him next to my mother. And, you know, when we go there to pray, we pray for them both. Um, this is, uh, that's, that's our goal. We want to remember the dead, to pray for them. And for uh, not only the ones we know and the others we don't know. Oftentimes, when I pass by a cemetery, I'll pray for all the souls that I'll bless them and pray for them. Uh, this, is a, this is one of the spiritual works of mercy to pray for the dead and we should do that okay so that's what i would recommend you do and find peace in that and look forward to the day when you'll see our lord and presumably your husband too we have another email here from wanda father mitch i'm wondering who was actually in the upper room in some of the paintings they showed during the Rosary and the Glorious Mysteries, the third mystery shows the Apostles and Mary receiving the Holy Spirit, but then there's others painted. There are other paintings 
which show another woman with Mary and the apostles. My question is, who was in the upper room? I tried to find in the Bible, but couldn't. So how do we know? Wanda, take a look at Acts chapter 1. You'll see that there were 120 people in the upper room. That, so, of course, the center of attraction would be the original 11 uh, apostles plus Matthias, whom they chose to replace Judas. The Blessed Virgin Mary is mentioned there, along with other relatives of our Lord. They're mentioned there. And all of them together make 120. So that's who's up there. And so the, the artists have room to focus on Mary and the apostles, but they can, they can also include all the others. You know, it just might be that the apostles and Our Lady might get lost in the big crowd of 120. So they just sort of limit it. Okay. And then I have, oh, wait, I don't think I have much time. Um, yeah, let, we'll, I have to take this other email because that's a long, short email, long answer, as always. So thank you all for being with us. I uh, appreciate it. I hope that you find these reflections on Scripture helpful. And also want to remind you that, you know, this network is brought to you by you. Uh, Mother Angelica was truly inspired by our Lord not to listen to what everybody else said and sell advertising. She didn't want to do that, didn't want to be beholden to advertisers. She wanted to trust in God. She lived out this providence of the, the birds of the air and, and, and the foxes, you know, Jesus had less. So that's what she does with us. Continue to support us and may God bless you and keep you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless and take care.